Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby from the Digital Shelf Institute. It's not a shocking revelation to say that understanding Amazon's strategy is critical intelligence for a winning e-commerce strategy, no matter whether you list on Amazon or not. That's why we reached out to Eamon Kelly. He's a senior research analyst in consumer and e-commerce for Edgewater Research. One of his major beats is Amazon, and he came on and read the 2020 tea leaves with Rob and me. Here are his insights. So Eamon, with all of your your knowledge about Amazon and how much time you spend looking at that platform, I think it's very important that our listeners know how much of your household shopping budget actually gets spent through Amazon. It's a high portion, you know, given, uh, you know, given uh, two kids at home and, uh, you know, busy job, it's, you know, we just find it extremely convenient. So I'd say a solid, you know, outside of, outside of food and, and grocery, you know, it's, you know, probably 60, 70% plus. Oh, Jeff Bezos just had a twinge that, that your grocery and food isn't going through them. Yes. The white whale. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The Moby Dick of Amazon. (laughs) Um, yeah. To your business, Edgewater advises investors on a, on a whole bunch of different stocks, including and in, in for our interest, especially Amazon. And uh, Amazon's a really confusing company, I think, for investors because they optimize for free cash flow instead of GAF profitability. They're a weird conglomerate that's organically built that's in a ton of different businesses. So we, we wanted to start the conversation at sort of the highest level, which is, um, how do you think of Amazon's financial motivation? And in particular, is it meaningfully different than the way that other large public companies operate? It is. I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, they're extremely focused on free cash flow. I think you have seen somewhat of a change over the last, you know, five years where, you know, yes, there has been, you know, at, at times, and I think we'll, we'll probably, we could go into it a little bit later, but at times you do see them focus a little bit more on profitability today than they did, you know, five years ago, that probably wouldn't even come up in conversations with people. So, um, you know, yeah, I think there's, there's been you know, drastic changes at Amazon in terms of, of how they look at business. And you know, some of it is, I think, you know, when we started to follow this company, you know, roughly 10 years ago, um, yeah, the, the comment that the Bezos always made, you know, they just, they didn't care what investors thought. He just ran the business for what he thought was, you know, right long term. And I think you fast forward here to, to 2020 and, you know, certainly they're, they've gotten a little bit more focused on, on profitability. They have gone to you know, listen to investors to, to some degree. Um, you know, I think it's for them, it's finding that, that fine balance of, of top line and profitability and, and managing free cash flow. So, you know, yo, yes, that is different than some of the other traditional, uh, you know, brick and mortar retailers that we follow where, you know, free cash flow isn't, isn't the main focus. And, you know, for the most part, for a lot of these company, companies, it's, you know, what's, what's the comp this quarter and, you know, what is the margin and the flow through to the bottom line? So, you know, yeah, I think they tend to take a significantly longer term approach. And you see that with a lot of the investments that they've made over the last, uh, the last several years and probably over the next 10 years. But free cash flow, the focus on free cash flow anyway, allows them to do that other retailers have a harder time doing. 
is invest cash over the long run, even if, mean, even if it means that their gap profitability is zero. And other retailers are focusing on on more short-term goals, like you know, like you're saying, the the quarter over quarter comps and margin and things like that. But there there is one area where I, I wonder if Amazon's size and maturity has them acting a little bit more like traditional retailers these days, which is the stock price. And so much of compensation for key employees at a company like Amazon is tied to stock that they, they sort of on some level have to be more investor focused now than they were maybe five or 10 years ago. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the one thing that, that people, you know, haven't, that's gone pretty much untalked about over the last, you know, 10 years. And, you know, in a lot of the years it, it isn't an issue, but yes, to your point, you know, such a large percent and, and certainly all the upside from, you know, for the employees is based on the stock price. So, yeah, they do have to be cognizant of, of what investors are looking for. You know, you know, best case for Amazon is just kind of a continued, um, you know, a continued upward momentum. You know, it's not great for them to see 30, 40% appreciation. Yes, that sounds great. Uh, you know, sounds great at a, in a given quarter at a, or at a current time, but um, you know, you're setting expectations, you know, higher. And if you get, you know, then, a, a, another year where the stock's down 20%, you know, that's not what they want. I think, you know, best case, they'd rather see a you know, kind of constant 15 to 20% gain, you know, each year rather than a lot of the volatility. And for the most part, that's kind of what you've seen, but there have been instances over the last, you know, 10 years and, and more recently where you do have, uh, you know, fluctuations and, you know, that's something that they're you know, trying to listen to investors and, and figure out what investors are looking for and, you know, how to reposition things for the longer term. And I think, you know, that's partially why you saw, you know, a little bit of a, a shift mid year this year to refocus back on top line. I think, you know, they began to saw, see the top line, uh, slow a little bit as they were probably overly focused on, on profitability and, and, you know, decided to pivot because, you know, essentially the, the sense that we got was that was the feedback they had gotten from investors. That, that's interesting. So you've said before that Amazon has been operating for a few years on two year cycles of investment on one cycle and then profitability on another cycle. And so that statement is that and Amazon is swinging the pendulum back to investment right now. Is there anything structurally about the company's operation that gives them confidence to invest in, in revenue growth versus profitability? Are they doing it for the stock price? Are they doing it because they see opportunity? Is it a combination of those two things? I, I think they're doing it for a couple of reasons. I think one, they had seen the top line begin to slow a little bit. And, you know, along with the top line slowing, they began to see a slowdown in advertising, you know, as they were crapping products out, you know, imagine this as a manufacturer, if you're advertising and they crap products out, you are going to pull advertising because you don't have anything to advertise. So, and, and Eamon, just um, for you our... know, I think, I think some of it was the, the top line slowdown and, and the associated slowdown in the advertising or, uh, if you look at their P&L, it's, you know, within the other revenue bucket, uh, you know, the slowdown on that bucket, I think is, uh, you know, certainly a, a big portion of it. And then I think secondly, you know, I think they underestimated the impact that Walmart's OGP and all of click and collect has had. I think, you know, Amazon, 
um, you know, probably thought that, you know, customers were really focused on convenience and just wanted stuff delivered to their home and people didn't want to go to stores to pick stuff up. But, you know, I think the ease of, of click and collect, uh, you know, and it has really helped enable, you know, Walmart and some of these other you know, grocers like the Kroger, uh, be, be pretty successful over the last year and a half. So I think they've been forced to almost play a little bit, a little bit of defense. I think historically you've seen them a lot more on the, the offensive and trying to stay ahead of everybody. You know, I think this was one where they just kind of swung to profitability at a time where, uh, you know, these other guys had some success and, you know, now they're being forced to, you know, invest a little bit more, you know, whether it's something like one day that they rolled out earlier this year, or, uh, you know, you look and, and there's talk of, you know, the Amazon go expansion or the Amazon grocery stores that it sounds like they'll open up next year. Um, you know, I think certainly there's, there's, uh, you know, play of continuing to focus and, and how do we compete more with the Walmarts and, and grocers down the road. That's an interesting take on this. So if, I, if I'm going to summarize there, the top line growth is slowed. One possible reason for that is that there's actually meaningful competition that they didn't foresee. So the click and collect programs are more successful than, than they have been or that anyone anticipated them being. So, um, so, that, that's, so they, Amazon's got to play defense and fight back. So is that the reason? Is that's what's driving the heavy, massive investment in same-day delivery and even in some cases the ultra-fast one- to two-hour delivery? Is it that they need to be an effective replacement for the click-and-collect programs? I think they do. I think, you know, thus far, the you know, whether it's Fresh or Prime now, you know, has been – you know, I think if you, we talk to a lot of manufacturers and if you ask most of them in that arena, it's been, you know, relatively unsuccessful, uh, you know, a lot less or a lot less successful than anybody had, uh, you know, that had expected. So, you know, I think they're trying to find all alternatives of, you know, alternatives of how to you know, provide that service since they can't compete with the, they don't have the physical locations to compete with the, uh, you know, click and collect one, two hour, uh, you know, pickup. Man, that's such an interesting take on this. Like, I always, I mean, for years, Amazon's been so far ahead of the ball. And in same-day delivery at the number of products that we're talking about for them is so far ahead of the ball. But on the other hand, if what's motivating them to do it now is a defensive move to defend growth and defend stock price, that's, that's really interesting. That's a different mode of competition than they've had previously. And do you see... Yeah, I think some of it... it no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think some of it is that and you also then have the, you know, how do we stay, how do we stay ahead of everybody else on the deliveries, you know, on the delivery standpoint? So, you know, as everybody has begun to offer two day delivery, you know, their thought is, Hey, we're already offering, you know, we're already offering one day in 50 to 60% of the, you know, instances, maybe not necessarily the amount of SKUs that they do today, but we're already offering one day and we're not getting credit for it. So let's roll out one day more effectively, you know, and, and, you know, whether or not this was a, a big driver to it kind of put pressure back on Walmart and these other guys of, you know, Hey, you've, you've kind of upped your game to do two day delivery. You know, we're taking it to the next level and raising the, the, the stakes and going to one day delivery. So you know, putting the onus back on these guys to kind of make their, their next move, if you will. So I've got a, a topic very much related to click and collect and one day delivery, which is, which is 
I mean, especially if you view those things as directly competitive with each other for, for this next phase of retail. And that is how incremental is Amazon's business to a manufacturer versus versus just revenue shifting? Like if a consumer can click and collect to Walmart or order online for Amazon, is it just the same dollar going to one place or the other place? If you, if you are Procter & Gamble or you are Unilever, um, is, is it just a shift of dollars to a new channel or is it incremental in any way? Yeah, I think for the most part, it is just a shift of dollars from one channel to the next. But, um, you know, you have to adjust to where your customers want to shop and how your customers are shopping. And, you know, actually, the way we think about it is if you're a traditional manu- CPG manufacturer who has a lot of their business, whether it be in the, the club or mass channel or grocery channel, uh, you know, it's actually probably a, a negative mix shift because, you know, if you think about a traditional brick and mortar you know, shelf, let's say you have a, a you know, 10 foot section of some random category, you know, you might have 15 or 20 SKUs that fill that, fill that shelf. All of a sudden now we transfer to online where you have endless aisles and you're not competing against 10 people. You're competing against you know, hundreds, if not thousands. So, you know, there's, there are very few examples you know, the very few uh, examples that we've ever heard of, uh, you know, manuf- manufacturers maintaining share, uh, you know, online. And in many cases, you know, as business shifts more online and shifts more to Amazon, uh, you know, suppliers actually probably lose share because of the increased competition. Yeah, we've seen this. So the, the direct-to-consumer channels springing up products online, private label stuff, is that when you speak of a competition, those exactly. are the sources, yeah. Private labels, another super interesting financial topic when it comes to Amazon. I mean, retailers have been private labeling forever because it's really good margin for the, for the retailer and gives them an alternative to big brands, which gives them a negotiating, a point of negotiation uh, when, when, when trading margin effectively with big brands. Amazon's been in the, in the press a lot for, you know, competing with their suppliers using data as this big bugaboo. For me, I've had a hard time understanding how that's any different than Costco with Kirkland or Walmart with with their private label strategy or Kroger, which has a publicly stated strategy of having 40% of revenue from private label. Is Amazon doing something different there? What what do Amazon's private label numbers look like? I I think there's, you know, in in terms of the private private label penetration, you know, I don't think there's any any number that I've heard that I even feel comfortable is is accurate. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's any different than any of these other retailers. And you know, I think the one argument that you'll have that I know I've seen you know articles on is well, Amazon on people's item detail pages are saying, well, what about this alternative? Or Amazon is getting you know unfair placement on some of the. Uh, you know, search terms. Well, you know, in my mind, I, I don't know that it's any different from a retailer putting, you know, their private label at eye level versus, you know, putting stuff, you know, down at the bottom of the floor. So, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there's a whole lot of, you know, difference. I think in many cases it's, you know, I think there's some arguments, arguments to be had for, uh, you know, some of the suppliers, but for the most part, it's, it's very similar in, in our mind to how, you know, any of these other traditional retailers have handled private label. The data that I've seen too, I mean, to your point, no one has perfect data on this other than Amazon employees, but the data that I've seen is that the uh, 
category share of Amazon private label for most of the categories that they're operating in, you know, maybe batteries aside, is a lot lower than you would expect and is growing slower than you would expect and actually is less successful or has been less successful than the efforts at the major competitors of theirs, the Kroger's and Costco's and Walmart's and whatnot of the world, in large part because there is less choice in on the physical shelf. So they can have the one branded item in a category and the one private label version of the category. And so they can get a lot more share that way when it comes to private label. So Amazon, even when they're doing what people are alleging that they're doing with, with regard to manipulating search results, is still working competing in a, in a, in a, in a, in a playing field that is harder to compete in than an existing retailer on their own shelf. Right. So in in their own way, like their business model makes it harder for them to be good at private label. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing you have too, a lot of is you have a lot of, you know, you have a lot of white labeled, um, you know, low entry level product that, you know, has come in from various, you know, various parts, whether it be domestic or, you know, overseas, there's lots of unknown competitors. You take somebody in the consumer electronics channel, like an anchor that, you know, from everything I've heard has become well over a billion dollar brand on Amazon. And yeah, they've kind of taken the success that they've had on, on Amazon and leveraged that back to get into, uh, you know, to get into somebody like a Best Buy and some of these brick and mortar retailers. So, you know, not only do you have the private label aspect, but you have you know, all of the, you know, no name white label, white labeled product that's, you know, that's come in from, from overseas as well. So when you look on the other side of that, I mean, you, you have somebody like an anchor that, you know, found their success there and then is now spinning it out into, into other channels. Uh, what's your view on the Nike move to, to divorce Amazon? Uh, is that a sort of a, does that go in the category of the luxury brand kind of, uh, arm's length distance or what was that choice about? Do you know? Yeah, I, I quite honestly, you know, I, I don't know that if you look at the Nike and you know, we certainly don't have the ability to do this, but if you look back at the Nike site on Amazon five years ago versus three years ago versus a year, uh, looking at probably a year, three years out, I quite honestly don't know that there's a whole lot of a difference from a consumer perspective. You know, I think some of us that are heavy into Amazon like to talk about, you know, Nike and other examples like this, but I think from the consumer side, there's very little difference that, you know, a normal consumer can tell of the shopping experience of Nike product on Amazon, you know, a year and a half ago, versus five years ago versus today. Yeah. So picking our head back up to Amazon retail business as a whole, one one of the ways that retailers drive margin across the board is through advertising. And in a, in a traditional brick world, it's the trade advertising spend, slotting fees and end cap promotions and circular promotion and stuff like that. And that amounts to a very large percentage of the advertising budget of a Procter & Gamble or, or any of the other big advertisers. And Amazon's advertising business is growing like gangbusters right now. And people are focusing that on that as and another high margin advantage that Amazon has. But I, I also, that's another area where I struggle to see how financially it's much different than traditional retail. So what's the, what's the true difference there in Amazon advertising and financial leverage and margin driving versus trade advertising of a traditional uh, brick retailer. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I think you look and, and I think the challenge is that, 
you know, a lot of traditional manufacturers just aren't set up organizationally. They weren't, they were set up organizationally to deal with the traditional uh, retailers. And, you know, a lot of them expect to see some type of return on a, you know, on a, on a dollar, if they run a promotion, they expect to see some type of return or, you know, you, you use the term sliding fee. You know, if they, they pay something for a sliding fee, they're going to get on the shelf and in turn, they're going to sell product. I think a lot of manufacturers have just struggled to wrap, the, wrap their arms around, you know, the, the old AMG process. And I think gradually, you know, we found over the last several years, I think companies are finally beginning to, you know, finally beginning to adjust and look at Amazon as a, as an advertising vehicle, because, you know, you look and yes, you can measure the spend and the ROI on what you're getting on Amazon. But, you know, I, I think you guys, if you guys and, and anybody listening is, is similar to me, how many times are you at a brick and mortar retailer and you're looking at five things in the shelf? The first thing you do, right. Is you pull out, you pull out your phone and, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to compare the two products, you're looking on your phone to compare them and, you know, 99% of the time I'm looking on Amazon. So, you know, that's the one area where I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people hadn't necessarily thought of, or maybe thought of, but didn't account for. And, you know, I think you've seen, it's forced a lot of, you know, manufacturers to adjust the way they think about, uh, you know, they think about Amazon, um, you know, and, and where that, where that spend goes and, and where yeah, it comes I think from, the, yeah. you know, still today, there's lots of manufacturers that we talk to where they struggle to get the brand team to fund spend on Amazon. And that's just something that as an industry, I think, you know, will continue to evolve over the next several years. So that actually is interesting that, um, traditional trade advertising spend is really specific to an individual retailer, individual channel, right? The, Amazon advertising spend and what you're saying is influential beyond the individual channel. It, it can be treated as brand. So that enables Amazon to capture not just advertising spend related to Amazon, but instead advertising spend related to the whole brand itself. And that, that actually would give them more of a margin advantage versus what, what, what Walmart or, or Kroger are capable of doing today. Is that, is that a fair restatement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as you, as you've seen over the years, as they continue to become more front and center from a search perspective, yeah, I think it's always hard. We always ask people, Hey, as you're, as you're reallocating resources and dollars to, you know, the Amazon advertising business, where's that coming from? And, you know, obviously you're seeing this consistent shift to more and more digital advertising, right? So you have this, shift that's been happening from years of traditional print shifting over to digital. But what you also have in many cases is this shift within digital. And, uh, you know, the one place that gets called out probably the most because they're most comparable on the digital side would be, would be Google and Amazon. And, and that's probably the one area we've seen more of those, uh, you know, more of those dollars shift. And, you know, I think it's going to be interesting, you know, that the whole advertising and even the in-store slotting fees and traditional trade spend is going to go through another, you know, massive change, I think, over the next five years as you have, uh, you know, all of these retailers rolling out their own, you know, their own advertising, whether it be Walmart or Target or Instacart, uh, you know, or Kroger, you know, everybody is seeing the success that Amazon's had and is trying to jump in and, and kind of launch their own version of, of Amazon advertising. So let's 
Let's go to an Amazon growth area that we talked about for, for a minute, but I want to dive into a little bit more deeply. Jeff Bezos is one of the famous quotes that he's got. He's got many is your margin is my opportunity. It's a very gang you know, <laughs> style yeah. retail quote, right? It's a scary quote for people. Um, but in grocery, the average grocer in America in 2019, their average margin is 1.7%. Like there is no margin in grocery. So, you know, your margin is my opportunity. Like what margin is there there? And I I wonder how much that plays into how hard it's been for Amazon to break in. And I don't know the Walmart history either. It took Walmart a while to break into grocery as well. But how how much is the, the just lack of margin and lack of efficiency in grocery uh, a part of how hard it's been for Amazon? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think part of this goes back to what we've seen and, and you have seen a little bit of a pivot. You know, they had been so focused on item level profitability and to your point, you know, there's, there's, there's very little, if any profitability on the, on the grocery side. And I think, you know, that's why you, you have seen this change by Amazon. And I think it, you know, comes at the same time where you see, you know, stories of them rolling out more, go, you know, they've, re- they've removed the Amazon fresh, uh, you know, fee, you know, they're rolling out their first grocery store at some point in 2020. You know, I think it's, it's interesting that at the same time, Amazon has pivoted more to profitability. You know, you're seeing this greater emphasis on, uh, you know, on grocery, but, you know, I think they see it as the same, same reason Walmart does. Why does Walmart have grocery? Walmart has grocery because they use it as the you know, loss leader. They use it as the traffic driver to pull people in and then people are going to shop the rest of the store while they're there. I think Amazon sees that as the exact same, uh, you know, as the exact same thing. How do we, pe- how do we pull customers on more, you know, how are we getting people on our, on our site daily and multiple, yeah. multiple times a day um, and, and not having them go to the other, you know, other, our other competitors. So I've heard a theory, which I think is interesting and I want to run by you here. And the theory is um, the center of the grocery store is dead. It's got no reason to exist anymore. These are the shelf-stable consumer packaged goods, the replenishables. The theory is uh, directionally all of that stuff is going to be orderable. And so if you're a grocer, what you want to do is you want to reuse that valuable square footage for higher margin, higher value, more differentiated things like wine tasting space, prepared food, more space for fresh, uh, things like that, right? And in that world, if assuming that the center aisle all really goes to delivery of some kind, one of the things that people have been focusing on in the grocery space in general are micro fulfillment centers. Instead of using the grocery store as the picking space, instead you've got a micro fulfillment center or a totally separate space that's really optimized just for picking to keep picking costs low. And if I think of Amazon as having any advantage in grocery structurally right now, it's that they're built to have really efficient picking costs for the for these uh, low low cost, low margin, high volume items. And I wonder if that's the the way that they get in. But I wonder if if that's all they offer and they don't have an answer to the fresh and the prepared, whether it actually makes them competitive or not. Um, so, what do you think yeah. about that theory? And what do you think about the the competition? Question? Yeah, we've kind of wondered that too. I think if you would have asked me, you know, fifteen months ago. 
you know, I think the answer, you know, our sense of what the Amazon grocery store looks like was probably, you know, dark stores, right. Where they're, where they're, uh, you know, dark warehouses where people pick, pick the product and you drive by and you pick your product up. So to hear Amazon, you know, to, to hear them moving more in traditional, into traditional grocery is a little bit puzzling. I mean, it's also probably a test. Amazon's testing stuff daily that none of us even hear about, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So as they, as they roll out the first you know, grocery store, you know, it's just one test, but yeah, I think you're right. That is their, their advantage is not having that. And I think, you know, the one piece of feedback that we've had, and I'm sure everybody has seen this is how frustrating is it, you know, going through a, a grocery store when you have, uh, or I see this at Costco all the time going through these stores and you just have a bunch of pickers who they know where everything is and they're just flying around and, you know, you're getting run into in some cases and, you know, you get these massive orders and all of a sudden something's out of stock. So, you know, I think that that's going to be the struggle too for some of these grocery stores is how do we effectively, you know, how do we effectively manage inventory levels? And, um, you know, that's, so I, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see that the, the route that a- Amazon to takes decides to take with grocery and quite honestly it's probably a combination of all of the above it's probably a you know there's probably physical grocery stores there's probably dark fulfillment centers where you can uh you know utilize some version of click and collect and then you probably have the traditional amazon model where you have delivery to home the the hybrid though i mean does have like you're talking about it does have pretty negative side effects there's actually an irony with amazon prime delivery and whole foods where Amazon is so focused on customer experience, but the experience at shopping at Whole Foods when it's packed with pickers is has gotten quite bad. My wife and I used to really just enjoy going there with our kid and like kind of exploring what was on the shelves and tasting things at the tasting stations. And now going to Whole Foods, it's just a zoo. And you do get bumped into, and you, you do have the pickers just bombing through the store and well, I mean, the pickers it, at our local Whole Foods uh, actually said that it's when your daughter Soshi comes in that they feel <laughs> 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 I've seen her running through <laughs> a restaurant before so I can imagine what it's like in Whole Foods <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, yeah, maybe that's what the employees are saying. It's that the more pickers we have, the less, <laughs> less the less toddler friendly we are. So they're, they're no, but I, I, I joke, I joke. But but I I think it's true that they are two different experiences, and and when you mesh them together, particularly I would imagine in the urban areas, it starts to get really crazy. This is a lot. This is a, a big part of. The interesting thing about Amazon is this sort of colliding of worlds and colliding of strategies in a weird science experiment where there's no one knows what's going to happen. Another area is, and you guys focus on on, on this a lot in 2019 research at Edgewater, was the, the rise of 3P as a way to drive assortment. And Amazon, Amazon, which, you know, generally speaking, is has a reputation for, for being really hard to um, negotiate with as a supplier, um, has actually cut fees to th- third-party sellers, and it's just made it made it cheaper and easier to list as a third-party seller to increase uh, assortment. Um, it's in that world where so much is, is third-party, you do get these, these weird unintended consequences where there's a great first-party experience, there's a variable third-party experience, and a lot of the third-party products are fraudulent, right? So um, 
It's just the same thing with Whole Foods and the and the, the picking. You have yeah. you've got a great delivery experience. You've got great product in Whole Food, but doing them both on the same platform, you you end up marginalizing a a, a third axis here, which is the in store shopping experience. Um, so it, it's interesting to see them try to thread the needle and get this all done at once. But getting getting back to the the third party stuff as a as a segue, yeah. um, what what were the big stories in terms of Amazon? cutting fees in 2019 to drive top line and what, why was it necessary for them to concede anything? Yeah, I, I think they felt like as they, as they were continuing down this path of profitability and as they begun to remove some brands that were smaller of nature, you know, there was at, at, at times there was this threshold of $10 million thrown out there of any brand under $10 million would, was going to go away. Um, but as Amazon put pressure on both small ba- brands and big brands, you know, to improve profitability, you know, they use the third party as a way to, uh, you know, pick up some of that lost selection. So, you know, as they've, if, as they've gotten rid of some brands and quite honestly, as some brands have walked away from Amazon, you know, they've used those as a way to, to get that. And, you know, the categories where they did it most on were a lot of those lower margin consumables. And I think, you know, back to what we talked about before, there's not much margin in, in grocery. And, you know, if you look at some of the traditional categories for Amazon where they're charging, you know, at, at minimum in many cases, a 10% plus you know, type uh, fee as a third party, you know, in grocery, that's hard to do. So I think they felt it necessary to, you know, in many cases, remove that and, and use these as almost loss leaders so that they can provide selection and improve, you know, improve the customer experience for, uh, for a shopper to avoid that customer from having to leave the site to go to another site. So, you know, I think that was a, a big focus point. I think it's been, you know, interesting as you fast forward now to today where, you know, they've now been a bit more focused on top line. And I think, you know, at the same time of being more focused on top line, what they found is that the third party, you know, experience hasn't been overly great. I think they felt like they lost a little bit of control uh, with the third parties because as things, you know, there's, there's probably no instances I've ever heard of where a brand is pulling something off of the first party side and moving it to third party at a lower price. You know, in 99% of those instances, the products get pulled off of Amazon and go into the third party and the price is going from, you know, $10 to all of a sudden now on the third party, it's going for $12. So, you know, I think Amazon felt this, this need, uh, you know, to, to rein in the third party a little bit. And now what we've seen over the last several uh, months is a little bit of a, a refocus and, and, and actually cur- you know, taking away some of the third parties. You know, I think there's been several thousand that they've eliminated and, and we've heard as we move into the first quarter of 2020 uh, and get past holiday, there's probably another tranche of, of third parties that get eliminated, whether it's from a bad, bad experience from a price perspective or, you know, to your point with a lot of fraudulent and counterfeit items, I think they're, you know, beginning to, to, to crack down a little bit, certainly not, not. Uh, to the degree that any of us would hope for, but I do think you're going to start to see them cracking down a little bit on, uh, you know, some of the third parties as we go into 2020. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as we were talking about the fraud program, when you see it, when you see it, the investments they're trying to make to try and scale that back, I mean, they're getting a lot of tough headlines over that and in some cases uh, deserve, but it's a, it's a huge problem for them and, and for consumers. Do you see the one vendor program sort of playing out in that in, in the near or midterm? 
you know what's happening on that? Yeah, side? I think one vendor was a great was a great program in theory. If I go back two years ago, you know, and and think to what that looked like last year at this time, the whole thesis of the program was, hey, we're going to dictate where and how items are sold. So, you know, Mister Manufacturer, you're going to sell these items on one P. Uh, or you're going to sell these items on, on 3P, whichever one we want that to be. And, you know, we're probably, as Amazon, we're going to take the higher, you know, the highest velocity items and those C and D SKUs, we're probably going to push to the third party, uh, to the third party side. And then, you know, you had other examples where, you know, they just took the smallest manufacturers and they said a manufacturer that's under, you know, that's only a couple million dollars like that, that supplier just doesn't matter. It's not worth our time. We're going to focus on these, you know, whatever three or five thousand dollars, three or five thousand um, most important brands on the site. Um, so I, I think that was kind of the focus for, from what we understand. Uh, I think one vendor has kind of evolved. I think it's it's I don't want to call it dead, but I think it's taken a bit of a backseat as they've refocused on profitability. Um, you know, I think you've seen them kind of hit the pause button there because, you know, one vendor was in, in several cases taking selection off of the first party side. And I think Amazon from everything we've seen over the last six months has been trying to improve selection again on the, on the, uh, on the one P side. That's so now does that, does that come back down the road? You know, certainly anything's possible, but I think for the at least the next year or so, um, yeah, I, I think that kind of one vendor program is probably on the on the back burner. Yeah. So high high level here. Let's let's end on an industry wide note, which is how like why is Amazon so hard to compete with for other retailers? You know, can another retailer effectively compete? Uh, how does the math work? Are there things that are holding back a Walmart or a Kroger from? being able to to fight back harder and stronger and faster and with more growth online than, than they have been able to today? Like what structurally is Amazon using at a, as its advantage to, to continue to grow as fast as they've been growing? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, why do you, why do you shop on Amazon? At least for me, it's, it's all about the selection, right? I can go on there and, um, you know, I can go there and, and buy everything that I, that I need. And, you know, I can do it at work and I don't even have to go out to a store anymore. And, you know, yes, you have Walmart that probably is, is next closest in terms of selection, but they still don't have near, near the selection that, that an Amazon does. So, you know, I think I look and it's, it's certainly, you know, the ones that are going to succeed long-term are, you know, ones that, you know, have the selection like a, like a Walmart and, and Amazon. And two, it's the ones that have a niche where there's, you know, a, some type of service component. So whether you look at somebody like a Best Buy that has, you know, that has a great service offering, you can go in there, they have the knowledge of, you know, whether it be PCs or, or TVs and they have, you know, they have their geek squad or whether, uh, you know, whether you look at somebody like, uh, you know, an Ulta beauty who has, you know, some type of experiential, um, uh, you know, model within the stores. I think really think those are going to be the retailers that are going to succeed, you know, long-term. And it's the ones that kind of are stuck in the middle are the ones that we probably worry about the most, you know, over the next five to 10 years. 
Yeah, sort of the general merchandisers that are trying to be everything. I mean, they're the same. Exactly. Same exists, yeah, in the in the sort of general department store category. You've, you've got to get serious about who your customer is and how you want them to feel wherever they encounter you at any touch point. And I think that that's the consistency that's required, both of retailers and of brand manufacturers, that they get more and more into into speaking directly to their consumer. Yeah, be clear about why you matter. Yeah. I mean, Costco is still kicking butt. Um, in, in the world of Amazon. Well, that's right? just so. the sampling of all the food in the aisles. That's, that's, that's their smartest. Take <laughs> the kids thing. and they can have lunch. <laughs> exactly. It's a no-brainer. Uh, so she at Costco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's everywhere. Uh, <laughs> hey, Eamon, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your Amazon tea leaf reading and research with us. It's um, the value that you guys offer by being able to focus on this and provide your clients with insights on this is really a, a, quite a service, and we are just delighted to be able to tap into it today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate, appreciate it, guys. Anytime. Well, that's the latest on Amazon from here. Get more info live from the experts at our upcoming Digital Shelf Summit in Boston on May 20th. Mark Power, author of The CMO's Guide to Amazon, will be there in person to break down how Amazon is challenging CMOs to rethink the customer journey and how you can leverage Amazon's platform evolution to win. Throw your Amazon questions at us on our LinkedIn page and share this episode with your favorite Amazon trend watcher. Thanks for being part of our community.